This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today on Episode 5 of Season 2. The other thing we're doing now with the predictability technology is starting to look at some of the beneficial organisms. So rhizobium for pulses, the group EF, which is the rhizobia that modulate lentils, um, field pea, faba bean. Using that, we launched it as a provisional service just in South Australia and Victoria this year to identify paddocks where you don't need to inoculate the pulse crop. In Australia, the growers don't like applying the inoculants to the pulse crops. Most reliable methods have to be done just before seeding and it's a task they prefer not to do. So we think this is going to work pretty well. Dr. Alan McKay joins the show all the way from Australia to talk about some exciting work he's doing with his team to measure various soil microbes, including both pathogens and beneficial rhizobia. Dr. McKay is the leader of the Soil Biology and Molecular Diagnostics Group at the South Australian Research and Development Institute. He's committed to not only studying soil-borne diseases and other aspects of soil biology, but also developing tools for growers to manage this biology in their operations. Dr. McKay has played a major role in the development of Predicta B, a soil analysis technology which is now recognized internationally for its capacity to accurately identify and measure soil pathogens, as well as the nutrition status of soils. We're actually going to talk quite a bit about that in today's episode. We'll start with some background, though, which includes a massive sequencing of soil biology, with samples taken across 850 fields in Australia to sequence soil DNA. Pulses in Australia are generally pretty high-value crops. The acreage is not large compared to cereals, but it's an area that the industry wants to expand. Because they're relatively new crops, they often have uneven growth and patches in the crop, and people have put this down in the past to pulses not being as well adapted as the cereals. And so they've tended to tolerate areas of uneven growth in the crop. What we've sought to do is to get the agronomist, when they're inspecting these crops, to sample those poor-performing areas, send the plants to us. And so what we do first is we wash the plants out, have a look at the roots, give them the root health score, dry them down. We keep some plants aside for isolations later on, but essentially we're screening the roots using DNA technologies. We've got some qPCR tests we can run fairly quickly. And we've got our next-gen sequencing method that takes realistically two or three months to turn those results around. But we're optimising that to pick up pathogens that we don't have qPCR tests for, and that's been really interesting. But what we've essentially got now, we've sampled 850 paddocks over two years. We've got a pretty large collection of samples. We've only just now completed the bulk of the sequencing and the sequences have been assigned to um, sort of a putative 400 species, and we've now set that up so we can map those results across the country, and that's pretty exciting. So this, this data set is so large, you can't look at it and get a sense of what's going on. But when you um, have the mapping routine and you select the pathogen of interest, and you can do it by crop or by all crops, and click a button and Suddenly you see a map of where this thing is across the country, and it's pretty exciting when you see that. This is a really cool and massive undertaking. I mean, mapping out the presence of these microbes not only could tell us what pathogens are out there, but it could also give us indications of how they've spread or perhaps even how they might be interacting with each other. Alan and his team were not only able to map out disease presence, but they also even identified some species they didn't know they had. 
Well, from a scientific perspective or a pathology perspective, I guess, the one that we got a little excited about was the Phytophthoras. Prior to this survey, there was a major project in northern New South Wales on Phytophthora metacaginus, which in a wet season, it can wipe out a chickpea crop. So there was no question it's a serious problem. What we didn't realise prior to this survey was that there's actually three other Phytophthora species, and two of those occur in the... Um, the upper New South Wales region. So whereas they thought they had one species, they've actually got three. Some of those species actually go right down through southern New South Wales, across Victoria, South Australia, into Western Australia. We don't see them as a problem anywhere near as often as you do in northern New South Wales, but there were a couple of crops that mysteriously were killed, and we think that these phytophthoras are actually probable cause, and we would never have picked them up if it wasn't for this technology. Now we look at the map, it used to be just a little cluster in northern Australia or northern New South Wales, and now it's a continuous line right across through the cropping region into Western Australia. Now, they have the potential to cause large losses, but there are others that are more common that may be not wiping crops out, but could be taking 5, 10, 20% off the yield. And they're the ones that we have to now prioritise which pathogens we need to focus on in terms of looking at management strategies. It's clearly not just one thing, which is what industry would like. So we can just focus on controlling organism X and get a 20% yield response. With a bit of luck, we might be able to zero it down by region and in certain areas, certain pathogens may be a problem. We're still in the discovery stage and there's lots of things out there we didn't really know about. Alan says the project of collecting all of this data is now coming to an end, but... They plan to continue to use the robust data set for all kinds of research in the future. This is a really important step to better understanding soil-borne diseases, which Alan says haven't been the primary focus in the past. Well, I think in Australia, leaf diseases and pulses have always been the major focus, and crops are regularly sprayed. If you don't keep your leaf diseases under control, you will lose crops. And so that's been the priority now for many years, I think almost as long as they've been trying to get pulses established. The role of soilborne diseases in pulses really hasn't caught anybody's imagination unless the crop has been wiped out and they can't explain it. And that's essentially what started off this project. We had three chickpea crops in the southeast of South Australia that died. And most people thought, oh, it must be herbicide residues. Someone's made a mistake. But the agronomist knew the rotations well, and he was convinced that wasn't the case. They sent samples to us. They looked like Phytophthora symptoms, but we couldn't isolate anything. And then at the time, we were working on next-gen sequencing, and we managed to find some sequences of some Phytophthora in the roots, and that started our interest. It actually took us three years to isolate that Phytophthora. It wasn't an easy one to get out, but now we've getting better at doing it. From there, we started thinking, well, what else is going on in the pulse root systems? And we got a bit of money to expand it across South Australia. From there, it was expanded across the country by uh, National uh, Grains Research and Development Corporations. So the first pulse crops that failed were in 2017, 2018, we looked more broadly in South Australia, 2019, 2020, it went national. I suspect we've actually got a much better database now of what's on pulse roots than we do on cereals. The technology is leapfrogged. Prior to that, we had very little idea what's on pulse roots. Yeah, and the other thing about this is when you've got the sequence data, you've got an idea of what's in the roots. You can then target those plants to do the isolations. If you're just relying on isolations alone to work out what's causing the problem, 
some of these things don't come out very easily. Um, depending on the skill of the technical staff, they might be very good at getting certain organisms out and not so good at others. And you've often got to use different techniques for different groups. Whereas what we're doing now is we're saying, right, that plant's got organism X. Um, see if you can get it out. And we just keep trying until we get it. The technology's come a long way in the last uh, 30, 40 years, I can tell you. And once they have the DNA sequenced of these pathogens, the team develops qPCR tests to be able to quickly determine the presence of targeted microbes in a soil sample. Alan says because of these qPCR tests, they can now run about 400 samples a day, easier than they used to be able to run 84 samples in a whole week. This level of efficiency has allowed them to launch Predict2B, a DNA-based soil testing service that helps grain and pulse producers identify which soil-borne pathogens pose a significant risk to their crops before seeding, so steps can be taken to minimize risk of yield loss. Predict2B is what we've been working on for about 20 years. It's actually a collection of what we call qPCR tests, so they're specific tests for specific organisms. And they're very good at quantifying what's in the sample. The limitation of that is that you only pick up what you're looking for. But it's quick. It's easy to quality control. It's scalable. So we've used that technology to develop a service to growers. And we've delivered that service nationally. For research purposes too, this technology or the Predictor B technology is incredibly good for assessing field trials, conducting surveys. The reason it was developed was to work out which potentially soil or stubble-borne pathogens posed a risk to the next crop. So if you've got a good rotation and you know that it's controlling the disease risks, Predict2Be doesn't necessarily have a lot to offer. If you want to go back wheat on wheat in particular, it's important to know which soil-borne diseases are potentially going to cause you a problem. So and if there are certain paddocks where the risk is high, you might want to not put wheat back in that paddock, or you might be able to then look at different management options to reduce the risks. Sometimes there are seed treatments or products or farming practices that might reduce the risk. So Predictor B really has focused on cereals. The survey that we've now done in pulses, once we recognise or identify the key pathogens in pulse crops, we can develop these qPCR tests for those pathogens as well. And then we'll look at developing up a service for pulse crops so that we can identify the pathogens that pose a risk to the next crop. And some of these pathogens are fairly long-lived. Others, depending on the seasons, they might persist for three or four years. So the other thing we're doing now with the Predictor B technology is starting to look at some of the beneficial organisms. So the one that we've started with is um, rhizobium for pulses. We've been looking at that for a number of years and it was a very tough test to develop because there are lots of rhizobia out there for pasture legumes, etc. These tests had to be really specific and only pick up the rhizobia that were associated with the pulse crop. And about two years ago, we finally cracked it for one of the main ones the group EF, which is the rhizobia that modulate lentils, um, field pea, faba bean. Using that, we launched it as a provisional service just in South Australia and Victoria this year to identify paddocks where you don't need to inoculate the pulse crop. So I don't know about in the US, but in Australia, the growers don't like applying the inoculants to the pulse crops. Most reliable methods have to be done just before seeding, and it's a task they prefer not to do. So... We think this is going to work pretty well. It's already, we've been using it for research purposes, assessing field trials, and it's pretty impressive for that. 
the methodologies used prior to the DNA tests were just so labour intensive and throughput was low. Um, one of the key researchers here said we can now do in a week what it would have taken him two years when he first started. So that is an exciting area. So the potential now with pulses is that we could look at packaging up tests for key pathogens and the rhizobium and decide or identify whether a paddock is a good option for that crop and whether you need to inoculate. Now, we'll talk more about the pulse diseases that they can test for here in just a minute. But first, I wanted Alan to share a little bit more about the test for rhizobia. And if farmers were actually finding circumstances that they thought they might need to inoculate, but they in fact didn't. This is not my area of expertise, but I've seen the data coming through. So, The particular rhizobia we're focusing on the moment likes high pH soils. So if it's a, a clay soil, clay loam soil, and it's got high pH Levels can stay high for at least four years and sometimes longer, so you don't necessarily need to inoculate. If the pH drops and you're particularly getting down to 5.5 or less, they can decline fairly quickly and even in sort of three years there might be nothing left, particularly in the sandier soils. But yeah, there's a lot of different factors. It's not just the time between the last crop, it's the soil conditions and even the environment, the seasonal conditions can have an effect. So people just need to get a bit more confidence in the data. They're only just seeing the first lots of numbers now. But we have been able to calibrate it to previous methodologies so we can draw on the experience that came out of that to help interpret the data. If we had to do it all from scratch, we wouldn't be able to go out so quick. So we've taken the previous thresholds and adapted it to the DNA technology. And for this rhizobia test, I asked Alan to explain when a farmer might want to sample to get a good idea of what's present before making any inoculation decisions. Uh, at the moment, we're suggesting they sample about two or three months before the crop goes in the ground. We're looking at seeing if we can push that sampling date back a bit earlier. So there is a decline over the summer months. So our summers get pretty hot. So if you pick up a level, say, six months before you sow, say at the start of summer versus autumn when you seed the crop. What we don't want to do is tell the grower that they've got enough rhizobium, but by the time they seed the crop, the levels drop too low. So that would not be good. The test works fine. It's just understanding how to interpret the results and to find the window in which it can be used. If there's no rhizobium present six months out, they're not going to come back. So if they're not there, you definitely need to inoculate. The problem is if we pick something up, does that mean you don't need to inoculate? And that's a harder question to answer. Now, as you probably heard Alan mention earlier, the Predict2B has focused on cereal crops, but they actually now have some tests available for pulse diseases as well. Well, actually for pulses now, we do have a lot of tests, which we're using for research. We're just not packaging them up as a grower service, but We've got um, the Phanomyces, um, which is an important one. We've got four tests for Phytophthoras that we've found in different pulse crops and legume crops. Got a range of nematode tests, a number of tests for Fusarium species under development. So we've got Fusarium redlands is one we're looking at. We've got uh, black root rot, which goes on some of the pulses. Um, there's about 24 that we've been running. Oh, we've got Foma pinadella, which is it's certainly very widespread in the pulse crops and right across the country. It's part of the black spot complex of peas. That test picks up didymella as well as the foma. So we've got a fairly extensive coverage and we've got a, it's probably four or five other ones that we think 
will be important. We just need to do a bit more background. The main thing for growers is that it needs to provide them with information that they can act on. If you just tell them that there's something there, but we don't know how, what to do about it, it tends to just cause them sleepless nights without giving them an option. So as research tools, these are just incredibly powerful. To speak a little bit to his last point there, many of these tests are able to quantify the presence of the pathogens and they've established economic thresholds, which you're about to hear was no easy task. And others of these pathogens present such a risk that all a grower really needs to know is if it's present or not. When it comes to um, pathogens like the phytophthoras, it's almost a presence-absence. If you pick it up and the conditions are right, then watch out. In fact, for phytophthora, it's very hard to get below the economic threshold. So we actually can't say categorically that a paddock is safe, but if we pick it up and the conditions are right, then you will have a problem. For other pathogens like the Fomapinadellas, for instance, they are very common as well. So there will be an economic threshold there, which we have to define. And it's actually a lot easier to develop the tests and get them up and running than just to work out what the economic thresholds are. So you can really only do that in field trials. And uh, they can vary between the regions. So for Pratolanchus neglectus and Thornii, for instance, which are root lesion nematodes, We've got three different economic thresholds for different regions across Australia, and that took a lot of work to work those out. So learning how to interpret the results is a lot more work than just getting the tests to work. This idea of bringing data to soil biology really could be a game changer on a number of levels. And obviously, there's still a lot of work to be done, but I couldn't help but wonder if there's a chance for this to someday be available in the field instead of just in the lab sort of a way to map infield variability of not only soil conditions, but of also soil biology as well. Well, the first thing is those maps actually will be really useful for sampling for the soil biology because the soil biology will be affected by soil properties. One way to reduce the spatial variation in a sample is to sample to soil type. Whether we can just drive across a paddock and use some sort of sensor to measure what's in the soil biota I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime, but you can never say never these days. When you look from where we came from in the last sort of 20, 30 years, there was no way people would have thought we could do this stuff then. So who knows what's around the corner. But I'm not aware of a technology on the horizon at the moment that could do that. I know people are trying to scan crops and use the, the sort of image analysis of that, the, the reflectance to diagnose different causes. but um, the thing about root diseases is they tend to take the roots off the crop. The symptoms often are very similar for a lot of diseases. I think it's going to be difficult to get a fingerprint that will be disease-specific. It might be specific to a group of pathogens, but down to a particular species, I reckon, is going to be a major challenge. And then there's all the interactions you were mentioning before. It's going to make it complicated as well. Thanks so much to Dr. Alan McKay for this fascinating episode about the latest technology for understanding soil-borne pathogens and rhizobia. Services like Predict2Bee will offer information to pulse crop farmers that seemed far-fetched just a few short years ago. We'll put a link in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about Predict2Bee specifically. And make sure you're subscribed to Growing Pulse Crops on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss our next episode with farmer Tony Wagner. You know, when people ask, you know, doing cover crops on, you know, whether it's wheat stubble that's harvested early, whether it's uh, pulse crops, 
what kind of dollar are you getting in return? And it's it's really tough because having that moisture reserve for an extra seven to 14 days, I mean, it, that's gotta be something. What about the, the wind erosion? What's that worth? What about the, the water erosion? What's that worth? I mean, there's just so many things that are connected to it that you really can't put a dollar amount on. Again, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss that upcoming episode. This show is brought to you by the Pulse Crops Working Group with support from the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, as well as the North Central IPM Center and USDA NIFA. We're releasing these episodes every other week throughout the growing season, and we want to make sure that this information is relevant to you. Please tweet us with any feedback or suggestions by using the hashtag GrowingPulseCrops. And we'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks.